Good morning, everyone. Good to see everybody here this morning. Happy Mother's Day to the mothers and to us guys. We don't get to do that. So. <laughs> Society might say that we do, but we don't. I'm just. Anyway. All right. So uh, it is good to see everybody here this morning. So. Just uh, the last thing we were talking about last week was back on question seven. We were talking about, uh, remember we're in James chapter four, and we were talking about submitting to God, resisting the devil, drawing near to God, purifying our hearts, and uh, lamenting or repenting for our sins, and... and uh, there was the note also of let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You know, does that laughter imply that we're enjoying the things of the world and not of God? And then humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. So that was the last thing we were looking at. I want to read uh, verses 11 through 17 again before we get into these questions. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit, Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin." So for question number eight, why should one not speak evil of a brother or a sister or a fellow Christian, however you want to say that? Well, he says when we do that, what does he say? We speak uh, against the law, we judge our brother and not a doer of the law, but we're the judge of the Right, when we speak evil, then we're judging the law. We're not being a doer of the law, but a judge. So we become a judge when we do that. And, you know, he mentions, well, we're going to get into that in the next question. So let's move, let's move down to question nine here. What other reasons does James give for not judging one another? We have a judge. He says there is a there is one lawgiver. There is one judge. It's the Lord. It's not us. So it's not up to us to judge. We we can't really know a person's heart anyway, not the way the Lord does. And there's no way that we can't tell or that we can tell someone's not going to turn around in the next minute and come to God. We don't know that. There's no way for us to know. So there's no point in us judging anyone, even if they're not even a Christian. 
or we don't know if someone is a Christian, if they're having problems and doing something wrong, that they won't repent and turn around. We should actually be there to help them do that, right? So, would our judgment really matter anyway? No, the final judgment. Right. I mean, even if I judge somebody, does is that even going to have an effect? No. I mean, we just don't have that power, right? It's not going to make any difference. I think uh, the only time maybe we need to judge is like a, a Christian's gone on the wayside and we need to bring them back. Right. That's a that's a different type of thing where we're judging like their actions and we're saying, hey, you know, we know to steal or whatever they're doing, whatever it might be, is wrong. And we would talk to them about that, right? Did you have something, Matt? Yeah, it, it seems like the problem here is that the person who's setting themselves up to judge is sort of putting themselves, lording themselves over and making themselves in charge when they're not and just being a boss, bossy. Yeah. And they don't have any right to do it. We're all brothers and sisters. We're not, you know, supreme commanders, so-and-so and -so and everybody else. We're, we're all in it together. Yes. We're, when, we're, when we're judging, we're putting ourselves up as the judge, as a boss, or as someone who's actually in control, kind of t trying to take the Lord's place, right? We're trying to put ourselves in his spot and say that we can judge. Yes? It makes me think of uh, earlier when we talked about looking in the mirror, that we're supposed to judge ourselves. <laughs> oh, yes. Now, yes, we should judge ourselves, we should always be examining ourselves, right? I mean, that's a part, that's a big part of Christianity is that we should be judging ourselves and examining ourselves. Did anyone else have something on this? Yes. You mentioned about uh, helping another. Uh, that's not judgment. That is, if we follow the example that we're given in Galatians chapter and the first four verses there uh, take care of that situation. It said, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burden, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Or if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, himself. But let each examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. So we're supposed to help that individual not. Right, we're supposed to help that individual that's caught in trespasses or has strayed and is, you know, doing right. Right, we're supposed to help them in the spirit of love and gentleness. Right. That's our way of expressing love. Right, that we bring them back through through love, not through judgment and condemnation. Did anybody else have anything? All right. So, okay, so if we look down at question number 10, because James kind of switches gears here in a way. Um, I think I think the ideas kind of flow together, but he says, why should we be careful about the plans we make? Well, for one thing, we don't know what tomorrow brings. 
Right. We don't know what tomorrow brings, right? And we need to look to God for our future. Look to God for our future, yeah. Make our own plan and leave God out. We, yeah, we need to, it's kind of like we see with uh, the difference between Saul and David. We need to look to God for what's, you know, what's in the future. And we need to understand that we don't know the future and what controls that or what's going to happen there. Yes, Matt. Arguably, this continues that theme that we were just talking about of humility. You know, yeah. Not being, right. putting ourselves in the place of God, right? That we don't know what's really going to happen. And if we just presumptuously say, well, I'm going to do this and this and this, and it's going to happen. Well, let there be light. We can't say that. That's God can control that stuff. Right. And that that is part of that theme of, like you said, of humility, of not putting ourselves in a place that we're not in, not raising ourselves up in arrogance. I think it's why he mentions arrogance, um, that we need to, need to realize that we don't know that future. We don't know what's going to bring, what, the next minute is going to bring really. We just, you know. So it is about that. That is largely, I guess, about humility. Um, so he says, our life is but a vapor as well, right? That we're only here for a short time. So, and it reminds us of the shortness, you know, how brief our life can be. And we, we really don't know when our life is going to end, each one of us. We just don't know. So question number 11, with what qualification can one make plans for the future? If the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, right? I mean, that just means we're acknowledging God and we're saying, you know, we're admitting we don't know the future and we're just admitting that if, if the Lord wills, if if Jesus doesn't come back in the next few minutes, then we'll, you know, <laughs> we'll continue on and do whatever. Right? Does anyone? Yes. Sometimes I find myself making a statement about my plans that way. Mm -hmm. If I remember, then I put it at the end, Lord willing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, might, I might forget to put it at the beginning. Yeah, sometimes I know we talk about things all the time, and, and I don't always say if the Lord wills or Lord willing either, but... I think in our hearts, if we acknowledge and know that that's the case, you know, we may not always say that every time, but but it's not a bad habit. It's a great habit to be in. Yes. I don't think it's something we have to say. It's a frame of mind. It's something we have to know that God has to be. We have God's will has to be done. Right. And we're following that, even though we don't always say it, but we know that it's God's will. Right. It's a frame of mind. It's what's in our heart. Yes. Well, isn't, uh, doesn't Christ in one of his prayers say, uh, not my will, but thy will be done? Yeah. Well, well yes. Jesus does say that. I mean, if, he was God's son. And he even respected well, the Father in that way. And he knew, at least at that point, he knew what the future was, right? So, I mean, for him, he knew what the future was. So. And he knew God wasn't going to change his mind, but still Time, had to ask. That was that human part of him, I, I believe, that had to ask that. I think so, too. So. Yes. I'm from West Virginia, so it was always, it was a saying that you heard it a lot. If, if the Lord willing, 
and the creek don't rise. Oh yes, yeah, <laughs> that is. I had to add that. I'm sorry. No, we we used to hear that a lot too when I was growing up okay, in the, in Wilkes County. Yeah, that's not an unusual statement in the in the rural areas of the country. I'll say that's probably not. Yes. And if you think about that, that's, that's really just an example of the Lord willing. I mean, He's controlling the weather and everything else, and so yep. that's just one example of where He can change our plan. Right. That's an example of God being in control. That's right. And things can change, and it will change because that's the way it's supposed to be, whether we are prepared or not. So we should try to be prepared, right? <coughs> so question 12, of what is one guilty when plans are made without considering the Lord's will? Well, that's true. You're leaving God out. You're not accepting his direction, I guess. You're not being humble, right? Yeah, you're leaving God out, kind of like Saul would go and do whatever and, you know, not not check with God or ask God. Yes? I was going to say, uh, when we have confidence in something, it almost gives us license to boast about it, but we're not supposed to. But uh, right. we, we know that that confidence comes from God. Right. Our confidence should be in God and in his will and his plans so that, you know, it's not in ourselves and in our will and our plans. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. I can uh, have plans and make plans, but I know that my plans... Really, no matter what I plan, if I plan something even in the next two days... It could change. The weather could change. Our lot might not get done. I mean, it's not supposed to. We check the weather, but but nonetheless, that's just the way it is. So, yes. In my ladies' class last Friday, I had the ladies over, and we talked about the three trees. And I won't go into the whole story, but each one of the trees had an idea what they wanted to be when they were cut down, and they were All disappointed. Right. Because of what they turned out to be until they heard the Lord say, well, let me show you this. And then they realized that it, his way was a better way than their way. They were used for other purposes. Yeah. And sometimes we are used for God's purposes if we'll allow him, even if it's not our purpose. That's, that's true. That can happen. So we don't want to be too trusting in our own plans and in our own... We don't want to be arrogant. This this relates still relates back to that idea of putting ourselves up where you know we're arrogant and we we uh, are putting ourselves in the Lord's place like we know what's going to happen. So it's still all in that same theme. So if we look at uh, thirteen, question thirteen of what is one guilty if they know what is good but fail to do it? Very simple answer, right? Right. Okay, yeah, the letter I is right in the middle. Sin. So we're guilty of sin if we know what is good or what what we should do and we don't do it. Yes. On, on a physical uh, plane of that is um, a father knows that he's to take care of his children and clothe them and feed them and house them. He knows that, but if he fails to do it, he's sinning. And we have a lot of fathers in the world doing this right now. And 
And on a spiritual sense, we know what the rest of the story is. <laughs> right. We uh, we do have. We, I'm I'm sure we're all guilty of not doing what is good at some point in our lives. But yeah, we do have a lot of things going on in the world where people know what is right to do, what they should be doing, and they're not. But yes, ma'am. My mind went back to James 2.16 where we talked about that, where the person says, go in peace, be warm and filled. And then they yes. don't really do anything. And so clearly <clears throat> by saying that, you know that they need to be warm, you know that they're hungry, and you, but you don't do it. We yes. We do good, but we don't. That reminds me of that, too. It take, takes you back to James earlier saying, you know, we can't just tell people, be warm and be filled, but you need to actually do something good to help those people, to help someone. And uh, and it can also apply to your family and helping and uh, making sure that your family have food and water and everything, just just basic, basic good things that we should be doing. And then, you know, Christ gives an example that when he tells some positive things about people, have, what they've done, he turns around and says, when you've done that, you've done it to me. So that's a, a positive thing. Right, because uh, Jesus said that what we do, what we do for others, really, that we're, do, we're doing that for him. If you remember, I may not remember exactly where that's located, but uh, he's talking about uh, the sheep and the goats, and the sheep have actually done good things for others and he says that's what they've done for me so i remember the story even if i don't remember the exact location of it so and uh that's a very good example of knowing what's good to do and doing it and the goats of course they failed to do that and uh the goats uh did not go with the lord so we want to look at chapter five next unless does anybody have anything else on that I was kind of just moving us along. So we look at chapter 5. Um, let's see. So basically, um, I'm going to kind of skim over this here. Uh, the summary, this opens with a condemnation toward the rich, uh, at least some of who were oppressing the poor and living in luxury and indulging themselves. And then the last half of the chapter provi as he provides a call to prayer and praise. And uh, in general, I think just uh, let me go down here and look, because I think in general we're just trying to get, they phrased it better than what's in my head right now. So like uh, the first half of the chapter, if we look at, if we look at the main points of this chapter, the first half of the chapter is about uh, religion, true religion, or just us displaying patience under oppression. And then the second half of the chapter is more about us being blessed through prayer, singing, and having concern for the erring. So I want to start off by reading uh, James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And then we'll get into our questions. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, or some might say have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. 
Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Uh, think of that as Lord of Hosts, and that's the best pronunciation of that word I'm going to do. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment, and some say hypocrisy there for judgment. I like to look at different translations, so if that, if that helps you to understand it more, hopefully that's a good thing. Um, if we look at question two, so who's being condemned in the first six verses of this chapter? The rich, right? Now, there's a, there's a note about uh, probably unbelieving rich folks who were oppressing, um, who were oppressing uh, other Christians there or oppressing Christians. Uh, if you look back at James chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, there's probably a, a relation to that. But uh, notice that, let's see, um, so it seems to be some particular rich folks that, uh, that he's referring to. So then if we look at question number three, what sort of miseries were to come upon them? He lists out some things. Their riches are corrupted. Uh, their gold and silver will be corroded and serve as a witness against them. Now, where it says corrosion, let me go back to that verse for a second. Where it says corrosion, there is another translation that says that could equal or be like a poison. Because it says, your gold and silver are corroded. But then it says, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. And that could be poison. It's like the poison of that greed or um, that corruption. And I'm looking at it thinking of that corruption as being like a greedy nature or a, you know, a, uh, a strong desire for wealth. 
and money above, you know, the Lord and valuing that more than God and others. So, yes, ma'am. You're just hoarding this stuff up, and it's just sitting there, and it's just wearing out, and you know, rusting and corroding. Right. Because you are helping it, you could bless people, and you're just hoarding it up, and it's just look, it's just sitting there, and that rust, the fact that it's sitting there rusted, is it shows that you didn't do anything. Right. So they're sitting there, they're hoarding up their gold and their silver, and he's stating it being corroded or rusted, and it's just rusting away and wasting away. Like, did you have something, James? <laughs> Yes. Right. Spiritually, they're corrupted and corroded, and right. Yes, because they value that that gold and that silver. Yes. On a positive note, we're supposed to uh, look at the scripture that says, "Lay up not your treasures in heaven, but you know, go to the spiritual part." Right. These things are eternal. We should be after spiritual treasure, not after treasure on this world or in this world. It's it's not that there's necessarily anything wrong if you are rich. It's how it's how you treat that those riches, or how you uh, maybe even how you become rich, and how you treat others after you get it. Yes. I was thinking of the rich young ruler that had tore his barns down because he had so much. He needed to store what he had in in another barn, so he he tore that barn and uh, built a bigger barn. But, you know, as Christians, we look at that and think, how selfish is he? Why isn't he sharing what he has with others instead of doing that? Right, and that's the point of that is that here he's he's so rich, he has this abundance of stuff. He's already got enough stored up to do himself, and then he has an even more plentiful harvest again, and then he tears down his old barns and puts up new bigger ones and just keeps hoarding up more and more. And if you think of that really from a a grain idea, then it, that would probably rot before he would use it all and it would go to waste. I mean, because you can't keep grain forever. So, but, uh, but yeah. I think it also, it, it refers to how they got rich. And that, in those first passages, that like they were cheating their workers. Yeah. That, he kind of refers to that. Yes, because we do mention that. That is that leads. That's a good lead in. If, if you got if you got your riches by actually working and gaining and, and <coughs> you know investing or whatever, but if, but if you got it by cheating others, if if that's that was what was wrong uh, back in Jesus when they talked about the tax collectors and all, they were pocketing uh, above what they were supposed to be. Getting. So, right. They got the riches by ill So, yeah. So, how you, how you get the riches, how you make the money is important too. If you're like the tax collectors, if you're charging too much money, if the soldiers, some of the soldiers were known to be kind of uh, in the protection racket. You know how we see the 
they portray the mob in some of the movies and stuff. Like they come by and say, well, you need to pay us some insurance money or we're going to give you a problem. So kind of that type of thing going on, being threatening. But uh, in this case, yeah, these people, we're going to get into this with question number four. Why is God angry at these rich people? Part of the reason was, like, like Judy mentioned there, um, they had defrauded their workers, right? They had kept back some of what they owed them. Yes? Kind of interesting what he says there in verse 4 about uh, he defrauded the workers and, and it's it crying out against the pen. Kind of think of uh, the blood of righteous Abel, right? His, his blood cries out from the ground kind of thing. And then it goes on to say, and it's reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth or hosts or armies. It's sort of an implicit threat. Like, God is in charge and he has armies and angels and destruction and you're doing stupid bad things and he's gonna he's gonna get you. <laughs> so yes. Like, you are not gonna go unpunished for this evil wickedness you're doing upon your neighbor. And that even goes on to, to talk about verse 5. Uh, you've lived in the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. you fatten yourself. I and mean, that's just plucking that imagery out of the prophets where mm -hmm. the, the people of Israel were living in decadence and luxury, but not following God. And, of course, they brought the armies, the Babylonian captivity and all that stuff upon them. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a real good point in verse 4 where they're crying out. And the cries of, the, of these people who have been cheated, basically, are reaching the ears of the Lord of hosts or armies, because that's what the hosts are. It's like the Lord of armies. Uh, so that is that is kind of a threatening, you know, thing. That if you look back at the old rulers, if you got into trouble and it went up to the king, you would be scared for your life. If you were doing something wrong that was against the king's law, you would be very much afraid, in, uh, afraid for your life because the king could have you uh, executed very easily. With no no trouble, even even David, that one guy who thought he was going to find favor with David, and of course we know he did not find favor with David. He was executed. I mean, that's just how things were back then. Quickly and easily executed for doing doing the wrong things. Um, as a part of this question too, I see, and you mentioned you mentioned that they lived in pleasure, uh, in pleasure and luxury, and in self indulgences, fattening their hearts. Um, and it also mentions they have uh, they have heaped up the treasure, of course, in the last days. They have condemned and murdered the just who do not resist them. If we read on down into is that verse six, you condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. So you're. Your, they, they, the rich people in this case that he's referring to, they have done those things. They have mistreated the innocent as well. So now we get into a little bit of a, a different question. What are we as Christians to do in response to such oppression? Not 
Right, we're supposed to be patient, right? Well, it says, yep, don't grumble against one another. For the judge is at the door, right? And we know who the judge is, and you realize there's a, again, there's that implication of punishment. You know, when you go see the judge, you, you may get a, a judgment in your favor, but if you're doing wrong, you're more likely to get a judgment that's not in your favor, and that's going to be bad. Yes? You know, Christ is our example because that's what he did. He never complained. He had patience. He suffered many things, but he never complained. Right. There's there's two good examples of trials. One is Jesus. That's an example of being on trial for something you didn't do. The only difference there with the Lord is that he knew what he was doing, and he knew that he wasn't going to be let free or be absolved in any way and he provides that example of, of accepting um, accepting what he had to do right even though it was terribly wrong if you look at the trial of Paul in Acts you'll see that he defended himself whereas Jesus offered really no defense knowing what was coming and knowing what was going to go on and he did that for us Paul defended himself appropriately and correctly within the law, did everything like he should have done. Now, even though we know in the end, from, from what I understand, he lost and was beheaded, but he did defend himself appropriately as a Roman citizen and did what was correct. So we have two very good examples of how to handle these things. It's just I feel like Paul's example may pertain more to us than the Lord's because the Lord is a very special case. But that's just, you know, it's the way I read those trials and understand those. So, um, all right, so let's see. So we talked about being patient. Um, it says establish their hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. If you think about that, we're to live every day we don't know the Lord could be back any minute, so we should be living every day all the time like he's going to be right here, right now. He could appear in the sky, everybody will know. And then, do not swear or make rash oaths, right? Make sure that we're being honest and letting our yes be yes and our no be no. Because we don't need to swear on anything else. We can't really... We don't have that kind of power. You can also take that kind of back to what we were talking about earlier, where we're not in the Lord's place, so we can't swear by the earth or anything else. Yes? It, it kind of makes it, makes it seem like if you have to swear to make sure that you're telling the truth, then it's like the presupposition is that, well, most of the time you're just lying. <laughs> oh. And that should not be what we're about. We should just say the truth. Yeah. That's that's a good point, that if you have to swear that you're telling the truth by something, then it kind of implies that you're lying the rest of the time, which we shouldn't be. We should always be honest, and that's that's true. Now, however, I have taken oaths, like in the military and things like that, and if you go to court, they're probably going to ask you to take an oath. And I don't necessarily see that that is what this is referring to, at least not 
I, I don't see anything wrong with those oaths, I guess is what I'm getting That's at. That's a problem I've always, always had because I've been on jury duty. I don't know, they just want the name for it, evidently. But uh, they used to call me every time you turn around. But, you know, when you're made to raise your hand, where you're never sure what compared to what the Bible says. So I go along with with what the judge asked because it doesn't seem like it's compared to the same thing. I'm not getting my wording right. I think so. I mean that I, as long as they're just asking you to be honest, I guess is yeah, what I was I mean, thinking. You know, that doesn't. That, that seems okay, right? Because that's what those are. They're just asking that's us what, yeah. to be honest. And like in the military, they're just asking us to be honest always and to carry out our duties correctly and follow orders. Yeah, Matt? I've not been in court like that, but I've, I've heard that they'll sometimes say, do you swear or affirm yeah. such and such? And, they do that and they'll too. say that specifically because some people are really hung up on this. Mm. I can't ever swear because this says this, right? Right. So, but I can affirm, yes, I'm telling the truth. <laughs> yeah, that and that's a good that's a good way to do it. If that if that troubles you, you can affirm, yes, I am telling the truth. You don't have to swear, and you don't have to swear on the Bible, even though that used to be just a standard practice. But you don't have to do that. You can affirm that you're telling the truth. That's true. So that's a good thing. So I think we're at the end of our time for this morning. I want to thank you all for your attention and your interaction. I do want to make note, I sent out some light blue books in the back. Those are four, because I figure next time we're going to finish Chapter 5, probably. Maybe, maybe not. But anyway, that's uh, First Peter. That's those light blue books in the back are First Peter, and that's going to be what we're going to start after we finish James. Okay? All right. Thank you.